I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I'd like to begin this podcast by recognizing the traditional owners of the land in which it is recorded. I pay respect to their elders past, present, and those emerging. If I start recording right there, is that all right with you? No. No. God, you get mad. Uh-huh. <laughs> Lordy, lordy, lordy. No one told me I was being recorded. <laughs> you just thought this was a nice catch-up. Yeah. <laughs> Made you a coffee and then I started recording. Oh, God damn it! Why do you monetize our relationships? <laughs> I don't know any other way. <laughs> I think it's my generation. Seriously. <laughs> Want to catch up to a podcast? Yeah, I do. That'd be really nice, actually. Welcome, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I've been a big fan of you for a very long time, and you've always been very uh, supportive of me, and very supportive in the comedy community, um, and a wonderful, wonderful person to chat to. Now, I have this podcast where I ask people all about nature or nurture, oh. where I get to know the people a little bit better. Mm. So, Dan, this is how I start the podcast. I say, what do you think has been more influential on you, nature or nurture? Nature or nurture? Well... Here's the thing. I I did a 23andMe recently. Right, yeah. And my DNA profile says that I am most suited to being a power athlete. Really? Yeah. How does that feel? Yeah, it feels good. It feels I worry like, about you with your foot. You've just hurt your... Oh, yes, I've got a ankle reconstruction. Well, that was from, you know, 15 years ago when I used to be a power athlete. All right. so I just do a lot of CrossFit. <laughs> I was really fit for, you know, three minutes yeah. in... Because know, those three minutes were amazing. They were really good. Like, we still was, talk about I was on television. You know, I was, you know, real looking really good. <laughs> You're looking fantastic. Oh, I was fantastic. Yeah. Then I've had injuries. So... um I like to think inside a fa- inside me, inside my slightly obese, uh, short-statured uh, being, there is a power athlete ready to bust it. Um, but, you know, which which proves the case that it really is nurture. Yes. <laughs> so nature says, nature says that I should be a power athlete. I should be, you know, this downhill skiing, yep. triathlete, <laughs> uh, marathon runner, but... I'm not. It just didn't work out like that. It didn't work out. But my mum loves McDonald's. Uh, (laughs) I love McDonald's. You're raised on McDonald's. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) For you, uh, one thing about you that uh, I was always surprised by, that um, I remember people always saying Dan Illick. That was always something that I remember about you. And then it's only recent that I've heard people starting to say Dan Illich. Yeah, I decolonise my name. I, uh, well, you know, when, when you're a kid growing up, all I wanted to do was work in media and television. And yeah. I thought it would be, I thought the name would be a barrier, uh, honestly. Like, because there's no H at the end. Sure. Uh, and, you know, white people struggle. <laughs> white, white people. Especially, and also. <laughs> me, me being a real <laughs> lauded person of colour. <laughs> But also, like, the the thing about MCs and everything as well, like, MCs at comedy nights or functions or anything yeah. are always the worst people that can pronounce a name. I always find that they're yeah. looking at a piece of paper in the dark and yeah. not sure what's going on. Uh, no, that's true. I had uh, a great UK comedian on, on the podcast a few weeks ago and I was unsure how to say her name, so I went to a bunch of YouTube videos to find other MCs fuck too. up their name. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, 
<laughs> I'm going to take one of these pronunciations and think it's going to be that one. Yeah. My, uh, I uh, remember Dilruk Jai Singh. I remember when he first started, and I'll have him on the podcast soon to tell this story. But he basically, when he started out, I remember him thinking of just being Dilruk. Yeah. It was just Dilruk because Jai Singer seems so hard for people to pronounce. Yeah, and that is um, uh, that's much a much longer, uh, unconventional, white Australian name than Illich is. Yeah. So, you know. Well, and so I was Dan Illich for a long time because I just thought it would be so – it's easy. Dan Illich, yeah. great. It, it's, it is what – it sounds what it looks like. It's yeah. fine. Um, and then I think around 2012 I thought, well, you know, all my brothers say Illich. You know, yeah. I, my whole family says Illich. I'm kind of doing a disservice, I think, to everyone in my family by doing it. Um, so I, I, I actually was on air at the time. I was, I was hosting 702 in Sydney. And uh, and I kind of threw it out to the audience. I'm like, so what do you what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Give us a give us a call on one three hundred triple three seven zero two. Should I be changing my name? Should I change the way I say it back to my family name? Great talkback radio. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah can of, I use my real name? Yeah. Should I use my real name? <laughs> Basically, I thought, well, look, no one get no one. No one's going to give a gold logie to a guy named Carlos Stefanovic, are they? But Carl Stefanovic, he's got yeah, a few. Yeah. He's got a career. <laughs> That's right. Know, yeah. yeah. Let's let's Aussieify this name. <laughs> I think you can chart my downfall in Australian media from 2012. Like I think you know, change the name. Haven't had a real job since. So there you go. How do you? How do you? <laughs> when you were growing up, what was your what was your family like? Do you do with you know was the comedy gene? I guess always always there in Dan Illich. Yeah. I, yeah. I. Two older brothers and one younger brother, and um, always pretty funny fellows. My dad is my dad. My mum, my mum and dad are, uh, are very funny in their own right, um, but very very different ways. Yeah. Um, dad is fiercely intellectual and uh, extremely facetious, um, partly because he's also quadriplegic. So dad, <laughs> dad's a lawyer. Um, and uses his brain and his mouth to get all the power he has in the world. Sure. Um, whereas mum is just incredibly effusive and generous and kind woman going about her day, yep. trying to make everybody's life better um, by doing things for them. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that's kind I think mum and dad are, when you talk about nurture, they're, they're, that's kind you know, that's, that's the example that I kind of had growing up. And mum, to more of an extent, um, in terms of her, focus on um, doing things in community and service and stuff. I really, you know, you know watching mum go 100 miles an hour doing things for everyone around her yeah, um, uh, all the time yeah, and looking after four boys and a quadriplegic partner. Like, it's incredible. Like, yeah. and mum's still doing it. Mum's 80 and she's, like, still kind of, like, yeah, has managed to – mum is such a great adult. Like, it's like yeah. I couldn't – I can't actually live up to the – uh, the the achievements my mum has done as an adult, you know, like mum's done so well. Yeah, I'm like, oh man, I'm I'm 40 and I, you know, I don't have a house or I don't have any kids. Yeah. I can barely look after myself. Yeah, I'm hobbling around in a boot. <laughs> I'm my own quadriplegic. No, I'm not. Um, but it's like one of those things where it's it's like I don't know how my mum did it. Like, I don't mm. know how my mum um did so well. Like it was like as an adult now, I'm like fucking hell. Like yeah, my mum's incredible. So, yeah. Did you just, you know, all of you boys were kind of used to growing up in a household like that with, you know, your mum helping your dad and, and him, you know, was he able to go to work? Like how was the, you know. Dad, you dad worked from home. So yeah. dad had an office and he could, he could do his early, early, 
when we were younger, he could walk with a wall or someone. Yeah. And then when he, you know, got a mobility scooter, that's when yep. all mobility went out. Yeah, like right. the, the minute he got a bit more freedom by being able to zip around town yeah. or go into court, you know, mobility scooter, yep. like gradually his his own mobility yep. collapsed and just couldn't do anything. Um, so, I mean, it was – I mean, it's such great freedom for Dad to have that, but also um, – it it meant that he lost a lot of motor skills. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but we didn't really know. Like, uh, when you grow up in a family like that, you don't even notice. Like, you you don't notice that your family is different, right? Yeah. So it's just like, oh, that's mum and that's dad, and this yeah. is our life. You don't. You do. I think oh, maybe it's because there was no internet back then or anything like that. But yeah. it was just like, um, it's like I I my identity wasn't attached to. Um, my dad having a disability or anything. Yeah. There's nothing, yeah, there's nothing kind of, um, like that. Um, yeah. So I didn't, yeah, it, it, I didn't really, didn't really, you know, you just don't really notice like, and, um, I think primarily growing up in a house of five men and one woman, there was a lot of banter that needed to, um, Get through every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. You, so dinner, dinner, Thursday night dinners was when my uncle would come around. That was when that was when Thursday night, you know, Thursday nights became the the banter night around the dinner table. Did you feel like you're always fighting for a spot? Yeah, yeah. I was. I mean, I I I was a good joke teller when I was younger. I yeah. was, you know, really into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my uncles, my uncles got videotape of me. Uh, on VHS of me telling jokes when I was like five years old to the right. family, you know, like oh, I can't remember and be doing magic tricks with balls and stuff, like <laughs> trying to entertain the family. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I loved, te- I think I loved television. I loved, you know, um, all I wanted to do was be on television you know, as, as a kid. Who did you like growing up? Um, growing up. Oh gee, like really young, kind of really into like, your comedy companies, your full front, yeah, your yeah. fast forwards, uh, and then discovering late one night, the late show. Uh, I had mum and dad had this little TV, this tiny little portable TV, and I stole it one night and plugged it into my bedroom, and I stayed up till like ten thirty on a Saturday night, flicking through the channels, and came across the late show on this tiny little TV underneath the covers of my bedroom of my bed, and I was like, "This, what is this incredible show?" <laughs> The Late Show. This is amazing. Who are these two people called Graham and the Colonel? What are they on about? And why is everyone having such a good time? I want to do that. And I think that was kind of the, you know, I think it's not unsurprising for a lot of people of our generation that show meant so much um, to so many folks. Like, and uh, there's a guy online who let me know he's got a uh, 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 MP4s of yep. every single episode. <laughs> Great. And uh, yeah, so now I've got I've got season one <laughs> as MP4s. He's promised to give me the other two seasons. Uh, Don't know when I'm ready. Me. When I'm ready. When I'm ready. Yeah. yeah. You tell me when you're ready. <laughs> yeah. Did you have friends at school? That uh, that's not the end of the question. Did you have friends at school? No, you no friends at school. Always just focused on. <laughs> Did you have friends at school that were into the same comedy that you were? Yeah, I mean, of course. Like yeah. at television, back in, if you're if you're someone under twenty five listening to this, television was the TikTok of the day. <laughs> it was um, instead instead of sharing it in front of you and giving it, sending it to your friends, mm. like you would watch it on television, yeah. wait eight hours, come to school and repeat all the jokes yep. to your friends in the 
in the playground. And, uh, you know, Eric Banner's Pointer and all these great characters from yeah. from those days, Uncle Arthur and um, all these great kind of characters with catchphrases that were easily enough for, for a seven-year-old to remember yeah. <laughs> would always kind of filter their way back to the playground the next day. Yeah, because well, I'm 31, so the... The show that I really loved growing up was Skit House, and then, oh, right. um, and then it was Comedy Inc. And I remember really wanting to get home to watch Comedy Inc. No we're, way! Yeah, we're out for a lovely Chinese, a succulent Chinese meal in Currumbara, um, which was about forty minutes from home. Uh-huh. And I really wanted to get back You're to watch panicking. Genevieve Morris. I wanted to watch, get back to watch Genevieve Morris, Emily Tahini, and Scott Brennan. Fantastic on, on TV. But it was like you know, and I was just starting to understand comedy and and what it was. But so the Late Show wasn't something that I grew up with. It wasn't ah. something that I ever saw until I met um, some people that had done it, like you know, who had had actually been in the show, and everyone was kind of talking about them. Wow! For you, when you met some of the people in Late Show, was that were they the people that were kind of your heroes growing oh, up? Absolutely. One of the when we did Ronnie Johns before yep. we did Ronnie Johns, we it's a did great sketch show on. I remember watching the Ronnie Johns. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, so 20, 2005. Yeah. Um, before Ronnie Johns, we did a sketch comedy show with our university groups from Sydney called the third degree. And we, we toured that to Melbourne comedy festival and Glenn came and saw it, Glenn Robbins. And, um, at the time we had some older folks looking after us, like John Pinder, yep. who is an incredible impresario of Australian comedy, started the Festival, started the Last Laugh, started the Big Laugh Festival in Sydney and, and the World's Funniest Island in Sydney. Just this incredible icon of Australian comedy who's no longer with us. Um, he was kind of our doyen at the time, like kind of, you know, pointing at afar, like saying, oh, why don't you go and do that? Oh, why don't you do this? And, oh, well, send Glenn along to that. You can have a look at that. Oh, you should meet Nick Murray, the TV producer I know. And, like, he kind of did all this informal connecting of all these wow. people. Um, so Glenn came saw the show and I remember... Jane Kennedy and Rob Sitch come in to see the wow. show at the Collide Theatre. And we were just like uh, gobsmacked. We're like, oh, my fucking God, we're in Melbourne. Fucking the Late Show guys are here. The DJs come see us. We're fucking awesome. Um, and it was incredible to, as a kid, like to have Glenn take us out for a beer afterwards and say, you know, you guys are really funny. Let's try and find a way to do something. And then, you know, Nick Murray being connected up with Glenn said well why don't we take these guys in to pitch and yeah um so we they got some development money money for 10 we sat in a room for a month writing sketches and then did like a sketch show for the executives of channel 10 in a boat shed in Sydney um and then part of that journey was kind of facilitating meetings with other legends like Nick and Glenn um flew Sean McAuliffe up to come and sit at a table with us and talk through um the machinations of writing and stuff and then Nick and Glenn flew us all down to Melbourne to go to Working Dog and sit in the boardroom and talk with like Robin Santo, um, Robin Tom, um, and uh, uh, that was incredible too. Like just like yeah. these, it was like we were being ushered into the new kind of world. Like we were like really upping our game over that last twelve months. Yeah, um, from being rat bag kids at the uni bar to kind of welcome, welcome to showbiz. <laughs> Gen- kids, you know. <laughs> the glitz and the glamour. Uh, yeah. Um, so it was it was a weird um, moment in a short space of time where not only did we get to meet our heroes, but, you know, work with our heroes like, mm. like Glenn. And um, that was fantastic, you know. like And then 
it's a really exciting, really exciting period that a moment because we were working so hard, making sketches and stuff, and working with other folks. You, our peers were kind of all working hard too, and you know Tim Minchin was working in those early workshops with us and was in that early pitch in that boat shed and 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 had a documentary crew with him for some reason. We we're like, what if you got this documentary crew? We would find <laughs> the out. The great Rianne Skirving. That's it. Yeah. yeah, and later we would find out. Oh, Tim had this documentary crew because he is extraordinary and yep. <laughs> <laughs> and far too good for us. <laughs> Was that the first thing? So you went from university where you met some people that you went on to do Ronnie John's Half Hour with. Yeah. So did you know that you wanted to be in comedy pretty much from that moment? And what were you studying at university? I was doing media arts and. And cultural studies, so mm-hmm. I just wanted to kind of find a way to, to work in television. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, two thousand three, I was hosting Breakfast on FBI, and then I quit that to work as a production assistant at Funniest Home Videos, which is the worst decision I've ever made in my career. <laughs> what was that like? What was terrible? That? Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> awful. It was an awful experience. Uh, it was basically. Were you helping find the videos? No. So I was one step up above that that <laughs> group of folks. There's a cottage in Willoughby back in the old Channel 9 in Sydney. Channel 9 was like this campus of uh, old old 40s and 30s cottages right? Um, all in a row. Uh, and and I, think, I think the old studio was like a cow shed. Um, and anyway, so they um, – we were sitting in we – we shared a cottage with the Sunday program, a very staid, journalistic-focused program, yeah. a very serious – Yarn Event hosted the Sunday program. It was a very serious program on, on Sunday mornings. Uh, and then the other half of the cottage <laughs> of this four-bedroom cottage was Funny Show Videos. <laughs> so there was a whole room of uh, like, a, like the living room, which would had wall, floor to ceiling VHS cassette tapes of every other episode of Funniest Home Videos. And if you think just for a second that you may have seen some of those clips on Funniest Home Videos multiple times, that's because the researchers would go back to the old tapes and go go back to the archives and pick out just stuff. repeat the same yeah, stuff go, yeah yeah let's chuck this one in <laughs> and then they would get tapes in from the general public where quite often um, funny stuff was set up and it was it's basically TikTok today, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. like TikTok pranks today yeah. will arrive on VHS and people go, oh, yeah, that's funny. Oh, no, that's not funny. And then, oh, that's funny. Let's put it in the show. And then bags of tapes would come from America, from America's Funniest Home Videos. Yeah. And so the researchers would would sit in that in that den and go through the tapes and pick out the things. Then my job was to take their clips and then put those clips from least funny to most funny. Um and you knew you'd done a good job because Brian Cockerell, the then EP of Funniest Home Videos, he's still making television today. He's great. Wow. He would, you could hear him down the other end of the cottage going, <laughs> ball terror. And that's when you, that's what you did. You did a good job. Pretty subtle way of knowing. <laughs> yeah. But for you, when you were doing that, what, what would you do after that? What was the process after that? You so you took the tapes to him. Were you writing some of the material? Did you ever? No, no. Out? They had a writing team. I, 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 didn't, I didn't. I couldn't quite crack it into yeah. the writing team. They wouldn't. Was never quite allowed. Wasn't allowed to do a voiceover. <laughs> sure. Um, there's one time where I deleted a voiceover accidentally, and the EP cracked the shits that I deleted the voiceover. I said, "Well, I could redo it." He said, "No, it won't match." And I was like, "It's probably like." 10 seconds. No, yeah, one's ever, no, no one's going to notice. <laughs> There's not going to be any calls. Or so. Yeah, yeah. And it was um, – uh, so then I would sit in the edit and um, uh, watch the editor uh, put the tapes together. And this is like tape to tape editing. This is right. um, literally using what looked like a Commodore 64 
seriously to run these tape machines to edit the tapes back uh, uh, back back to back. You actually were copying from one tape to a master tape. Wow. It was there was nonlinear editing didn't exist at Channel Nine in two thousand and four. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Avid was something like sixty minutes had, but nobody wow. else had. Yeah, yeah. You know, like <laughs> and I, I, at the time I was. I was already doing nonlinear editing on Final Cut Pro, and I was I would I would look at look at this machine and the editor and go, what what world are we living? Is this some like Model T Ford esque industrialized era <laughs> of television making? I got to get out of here anyway. I hated being there every second. Yeah. <laughs> Where did you go from there? I quit. I cried, and I went home. Yep. End of. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, not, not 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 a few months later, um, we decided to go to Melbourne Comedy Festival with um, the Third Degree. Yeah. So we went to went to Melbourne with the Third Degree. Uh, we met up with you know <laughs> Working Dog and, yeah, and, yeah. and Glenn and Nick Murray, and then we got a, a like a writing workshop on Channel Ten. And so, how long were you doing Ronnie John's Half Hour for on Channel Ten? There was two seasons. That yeah. was like a real baptism of fire kind of stuff. Like yeah. when you're. We were like 23, 24. Like when you're that age, uh, you don't know anything. Yeah. Um, even though you think you know everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what we didn't know at the time was just how hard and fast we'd have to work all the time and how emotionally draining yeah. a sketch comedy program is to make. Like yep. it is it is uh it's 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 an awful awful experience. Yeah. <laughs> unless you unless you got like you know some Screen Australia money that you can gestate your ideas for ten years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you were pretty much how many how many sketches were you coming up with? Uh, week, do you think at the time? I, I can't remember, but um, you know it was a twenty six minute show, and a lot of my sketches didn't quite make it. I wasn't a very good writer. Uh, or performer. <laughs> in fact, I don't know what I was. What the hell? What the hell was I on that show? Um, um, but I think I had probably good energy around everyone. <laughs> That's probably why I got to stay on that show. Uh, and you know, the other folks on that show are incredible comedians. You know, um, Heath Franklin, Felicity Ward, uh, Jordan Rascopoulos, James Pender, um, Caroline Fitzgerald is now a lawyer. Um, but you know those. Those folks and Chris McDonald, who runs Buckstock, um, you know, he was the head writer and kind of producer of the show. He he was the impresario at uni who put all of us together. Wow. Okay. Um, and he was the kind of leading force behind it. Yeah. And kind of the central guy to kind of get stuff done. Um, so you know, they're extremely funny, good people you're competing up against yeah and, yeah and collaborating with so yeah it was a it was a, a crack team like really fun um and you know i love i love i love many of those guys it's it's i'm very I feel very fortunate to have kind of um grown up in that in that little community it was a very yeah. small show you know very very small kind of team running it um and it was just us doing it like we and we were all from uni together we all yeah. went to uni together so it was um, – it's not – I don't think it's like, you know, a sketch show being put together today where it's like let's get this Barry-nominated person, that Barry-nominated person. It yeah. was like a real weird or like organic thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
When uh, when you finished, so you were saying that you didn't feel like you were a good writer, you didn't feel like you were a good performer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When when Ronnie John's half hour was ending, what were you thinking you were going to do after that? I thought oh, I'm gonna we're gonna get another sketch show up. This yeah, is gonna be great. great. We're gonna yeah, be yeah. Good. And I went I went back home and I um I I started a, a sketch comedy night called Comicide yep. in Sydney, mm. and every two weeks. We did this these great wild sketch comedy shows every two weeks on, on in a pub in a, in, a, in Sydney. Yeah, wow. It was one of those things where, um, growing up watching the Jamoan show, yeah, yeah, it was quite inspirational. Like, uh, I was watching a DVD of it around that time, and I'm like, and I saw the opening titles of the Jamoan show. And I'm like, oh, this is Bob Franklin and Jamoan and Gina Riley just hanging out on a pub stage somewhere yep. doing sketches. Yeah, yeah. We should just do that. Yeah, yeah. it's easy. <laughs> it's yeah. easy. And that's what we did. So we did that and we kind of built that up over years and toured that to comedy festivals for a few years in a row as well. Yeah. And I thought, right, well, rinse and repeat, we'll get another sketch comedy TV show up. <laughs> Never had a TV show up since. So there you go. <laughs> what, what after that? So, I mean, you know, for you, you do so many different things. You wear many hats at all different times. You've been... A showrunner. I'm so glad you noticed my hats. Uh, what a wonderful hat collection. <laughs> you always wear so many lovely hats. Wide brim. <laughs> Wide brim. The ones with the corks. Bucket hats. Uh, the ones with the corks. Legionnaires. <laughs> yeah, w- when yeah. did you kind of decide to start doing, you know, show running and, and go over to, um, go overseas to actually work? Um, I, I started, look, because, you know, this business is so futile. Yeah. No one's gonna give you a job. You have to make everything yourself yeah. all the time. Any yeah. success I've had has been because we've been making it ourselves. Mm. Like, because no one's <laughs> no one, no one, no one gives you. No one give, like no one's gonna say hey. Unless you're really good, of course. Uh, look, if you're really good, people give you jobs. Uh, if you, if here's the thing, if you're not really good like me, you have to make your own luck. <laughs> so you're just making everything by yourself all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's kind of like, well, uh, back in 2012 when we st- I started Rational Fear, um, I wanted to kind of progress. I hadn't done Comicide in a while. I, I was in in the I left Comicide. Uh, in Sydney, moved to Melbourne. I worked on um, Charlie Pickering's and Michael Chamberlain's um, satirical comedy show called The Mansion on the Comedy yeah. Channel. Um, Pickering saw some videos, viral videos I made, and he's like, "Hey man, you wanna you wanna come and work on work on The Mansion?" And I'm like, "Yeah man, sure." So um, I was kind of directing that yeah. as a as a young person, um, making sketches, making all the inserts and sketches and stuff with that. Yeah, was that another yeah. great crew of like amazing comedians, like. Um, uh, Justin Kennedy, um, Kate, um, Kate McLennan, um, and, and Chambo and, and Pickering, like, and Declan Fay. Like, I got to meet Declan Fay on that job. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, how lucky, how lucky do you have to be to like, kind of, move from Sydney with all those awesome Ronnie Johns people to move yep. to sit to Melbourne to work with these incredible folks. Yeah, Sammy yeah. J was on that show too. Yeah. Um. So just like far out, like. We're looking back. Thank you for making me look back at this. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, so, <laughs> so lucky to kind of jump from one one team to another team that I absolutely adore. Mm. Um, and then at the same time that I was just con- kind of doing that, I was working with um, the very fledgling um, uh, startup in activism called GetUp, and I was making a lot of GetUp's very first kind of communications TVCs yeah. and videos and stuff. And 
most of the funny ones were mine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it was really fun to kind of pitch them ideas and they'd have budget to make stuff. And Yeah, right. I'd be go, oh, you mean I can write and perform in this and uh, you'll get it out? That's great. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Um, and so we made, made some great campaigns for them. Um, and the first campaign I did for them um, was called David Hicks's Cribs. Uh, it was about the time Ronnie Johns had just finished up and I was working on Bondi Rescue at the time. <laughs> right. um, and, um, and I met David Hicks's lawyer on the plane. Um, Major Michael Murray mm-hmm. and and I showed him clips from Ronnie Johns and animations I was making. He's like, "Wow, you should do something for us." And I'm like, "Wow, awesome!" And so I made up this sketch where I played David Hicks showing off my crib. Yeah, uh, I like Guantanamo Bay, um, <laughs> and it was very funny. And yeah. um, it raised a bunch of money for Get Up to kind of continue campaigning for David Hicks. Yeah, um, and that's when I kind of got the satire bug, and I'm like, "Oh, this satire stuff could be really powerful." Yeah, I yeah. could combine comedy and jokes to you know push push my rabid left-wing agenda <laughs> um and that's kind of how i kind of started doing that um the first time i kind of really cracked it was uh, a where the bloody hell are you parody mm-hmm. um and i just made that on my own for no one just for the for the internet yeah um and it went viral now back then virality meant um, making a Windows Media version of the file and emailing it to two hundred of your friends, and sure. Those yeah. those those two hundred pe- people then email it to hundreds of Great. people that they knew. Yeah, that's how viral stuff worked back then. <laughs> YouTube was also existed, but it was very new. It's two thousand six. Yeah, and so um, it was one of the first things I ever put on YouTube, and it got like one hundred fifty thousand views in a week. Yeah, um, which is so crazy for YouTube. Yeah, uh, back then, and um, I got a cease and desist letter from. Um, from I think Gilbert and Tobin, who were the who were the, the people who made the, uh, the original. Yeah, yeah, right. The, lawyer, the lawyers for Tourism Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they said you need to take this down. This is ex- you've used the same music as our song. Um, and I said I was hap- I happened to get that email um, when I was working for working on Bondi Rescue, and and Nick Murray was ne- near me. Yeah, and he's like, no, that's Nick Murray said, just just tell him the fuck off, Dan. You know, you haven't done anything wrong. Don't yeah. worry about it. And I was like, oh, this is great. Nick Murray's right. Yeah, I will yeah. tell him to fuck off. So I sent an email back saying, I actually uh, I actually commissioned that music. It's actually the only similarity is the word nah because mm. um, the song was nah, 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 nah. Um, so, but in, in, in your interests, you'll ha- I'll have you know that I've taken the offending version down. Right. But I've replaced it with a do version, a whistle version, and a Crazy Frog remix version. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I was I was I was showing you just before we uh before we started this uh, a a documentary that I made and had a legal um legal letter uh, at the time and a friend of mine just told me who worked in law just said well lawyers are just people don't worry about a letter <laughs> like, I was like that was such good advice that's I think really when, good advice when yeah. someone sends you a legal letter or something and hopefully it doesn't happen in yeah. <laughs> in life too much but when you know you make something and the person doesn't agree with what you made and and I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. 
is annoyed about it and then you know you get a legal letter and it's it's scary the and first yeah, time you get one when when you're a kid as well it's like you know far out like when i say i'm a kid i was like 25 yeah i'm infantilizing myself in this whole thing <laughs> yeah um you know mark zuckerberg started facebook when he was 25 <laughs> what was i doing complaining about co- minor copyright yeah. scuffles um <laughs> it was it was, i still i felt very immature still though and it was one of those things where i was like this is this is dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then feels a bit cool. It was, yeah, feels really cool. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, it was so good to be like working with Nick Murray at the time. And Nick Murray was like, "No, nah, just tell me to fuck off." I'm like, great, I yeah, will. <laughs> I absolutely will. Thank you. <laughs> um. So yeah. So kind of, I was doing all this kind of satire stuff, which I thought might be getting an audience and kind of pushing the needle a little bit in some issues, particularly working with GetUp, combining content with audiences. Um, and community, mm. and that was really thrilling to me. And working at the same time with the mansion, which was kind of un- working with great com- comedy brains, working in satire there, and then, um, and then I kind of had some other odd jobs around television. You know, yeah, audience did a lot of audience warm up, yeah, sure, um, and uh, tons of that. And then moved back to Sydney, uh, and I got, I was just trying, I was just trying to make it. Like back yep. then, I was just hustling so hard, yeah, yeah, to make it. I was so hungry. And I went in for the project was just starting. I went in for a job interview with the project, and I was kind of showing Craig Campbell all the clips I'd done. Yeah, like, yeah. Look at this funny thing I've done. Look at this. This is this is great. Look at this satire. Look at yep. this, look how look at this David Heath cribs. And he was like, mm, "Great. Do you want to be a director?" And I'm like, um, "On on the project." I'm like, "No, I don't, I don't want to direct the news." <laughs> <laughs> um, and then so I got a job offer on, on the project, and at the same time something called Project Next was starting. Yeah. Um, and this, this was Andrew Denton and his company trying to find um, the next team of media yahoos. Yep. Uh, and that was turned into Hungry Beast. And um, I got shortlisted for Project Next. It was an extremely stressful um, day. I was living in Melbourne at the time and he was doing interviews in Melbourne. Yeah. And uh, so I went to out to Elstonwick and sat in a room with Andrew Denton, Andy Neal, my friend Jess Cohen, and while they grilled me on – politics yep. you know my values and uh we improvised like uh, an interview with a famous politician yeah then i had to go into another room and and make something out of nothing with a video camera and wow. some, some toys um and uh and that was a really stressful thing and i initially thought well maybe this one isn't for me because i'd already been on television and this yeah is sure not, like because this is for new people yeah i'm kind of st- i've already you know, I'm established, but yep. I was like, last time I did that, I was really annoyed with myself because there was some like comedy radio thing that I, that I didn't apply for because I'm like, no, I'm not a new voice. Yeah, and yeah. And I was like, no, I fucking should have done that. Yeah. And so I went and did it and I was really happy I did because I got shortlisted and I emailed Zapruders and I said, oh, the project have offered me a job. Um, uh, um, let me know if this one, I'd rather do this one if this one comes yeah, through. Yeah. And then I got a phone call from Andrew Um half an hour later, I go, yeah. uh, Daniel, and I was like, yes, congratulations, the project offered you a job. And I said, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Don't take it. And I was like, okay, I won't. Ah. Um, so it was really cool to kind of get Hungry Beast and Hungry Beast was the next kind of team of people yeah. who um, I felt so lucky to kind of be a part of. So yeah. it's a, it's what a strange, incredible um, luck to kind of go from the third degree crew from uni to the mansion crew in Melbourne to yeah. this hungry beast crew, which is very different from all those other groups. So, so comedy, comedy 
news current affairs adjacent. Yep. Um, uh, in, 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 and like working with another idol, you know, Andrew um, and Anita Jacoby um, and discovering new brains, new idols to work with, like not knowing who John Casimer was or Andy Neal was, but knowing every facet of their work through making the chaser and the Gruen transfer and um, enough rope and really being the faceless men behind a lot of those teams. Mm. And just, you know, it's, it's a weird thing to kind of look back in hindsight as a kid, looking at all these people and like looking at the chaser as well, um, going, Oh, wish, wish I could, you know, work, work like that and be friends with them. And then you kind of wake up one day and you're 40 and you're, you're good friends with all of them, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah, you're yeah, good friends yeah. with them. Like it's a, it's a weird, fun, uh, joyful. You know, I feel very lucky. You know, in that yeah. Regard. Yeah. Uh, do you do you always like working in a team? Like you know, you've spoken about a lot of different teams that you work in. Do you like working by yourself? How do how do you work the best? I, oh, look, I love I love a team because yeah. I actually I'm not I'm not confident of my own ability to write and um, perform, um, and so I love the collaboration. It's a coward's way out of mitigating risk, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, I started I started uh, after uh, Hungry Beast and and Can of Worms. Um, I started really f- trying to focus on what I wanted to do, which was more satire stuff, and that's how I started Rational Fear mm. in a pub. Once again, um, starting a panel show, which is kind of. Back then, there was no McAuliffe, there was no Charlie Pickering, there was no, there was no one doing comedy and news on Australian yeah. television. That's all I wanted to do, and so we started a rational view in this pub, <laughs> doing like a uh, a funny version of Q and A. Yeah, um, and it was really great, like comedians saying stuff about the world and finding interesting guests to have come on and doing it in front of a hundred people every week, um, broadcast live on FBI radio, and um, it was like really amazing, like 2012, yeah. 2013, and we kind of. Around 2013, we started pitching around TV shows and pitched it to um, lots of different places, but Foxtel um, were really interested and we kind of went through a few different rounds of pitches, like mm-hmm. through the small development people to the medium development people and we got to like the Graham Burrell level, which is like the high-end level. And we had this 90-minute meeting that should have been half an hour yeah. where we kind of went through the show and then they kind of sat back and went, this is really good. But I'll be honest with you, we just spent all of our money for the next couple of years for comedy um, on open slather. I was like, what do you mean next couple of years? And then, of course, later that that month we discovered they were spending like like a $30 million sketch comedy yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, the wildest idea for like, it. We had a budget of $1.5 for this show. Yeah. And you spent $30 million on a sketch comedy on show. On one thing. <laughs> on 15 episodes. <laughs> How um when you said you're not confident in your own ability in performing and writing, is that I mean you've done so much and you've got a proven track record of, yeah. of things and you still you still feel like that now? Uh, no, I feel I feel a lot better now. Yeah. Um. Uh. I it's I think having I think the early days I was kind of bitten by some of those team environments where I just wasn't. I wasn't as good as other folks and I didn't know how to do it. Yeah. Uh, and I was really like, particularly Ronnie Johns, it was like baptisms of fire, learning how to perform on telly is different to on stage and, it, and learning to perform on stage is different to where I 
grew up as a kid doing performance, which was gang show, which was scout and guide, you know, ham, yeah. very hammy kind of terrible kind of <laughs> um, comedy kind of performance on yeah. stage as a kid, as a, as a little, little, little fella. Um, but now I feel re- I feel better. I feel so much better now. Like, yeah. I feel like I, I know, I know my toolkit. I know how to kind of get, get what I need out of it, out of a situation. Yeah. I know where to be small. I know where to be big. I, I feel like, and with my writing, when I've had a really clear head, when I've got a clear head, uh, I'm often surprised by my own writing. I'm like, wow, yeah. this is actually really good. Like when we do compilation shows for Rational Fear and I put all the sketches together and uh, on New Year's Day, I'm like, yeah. this is this is really funny. Like this is a... Uh, this is great. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it take it's it's taken me a long time to feel good in my own work and yep. to be good enough to realize that now I am creative. I can I can use my power to get creative stuff done. Yeah. Um, and I I have I have the skills and I have the runs on the board to do it. And so now, what I'm trying to do now is um, uh, not only get my own stuff up. But try to help other people get their stuff up. Yeah. So I'm I work. I'm trying to work with a few smaller artists to, yeah. like what John Pinder did for us when we were growing up, do stuff for them. So yeah. connect a great artist with a great producer with a great with a great venue to open up the door for them to introduce you know this person to that to this world of opportunity because yeah. they got a set of skills that are incredible and kind of push them in the right direction. Yeah. And like. I know I can see that there's a few, there's a couple of young folks that are just trying to like figure that out for. Yeah. Um, and, and one's doing really well. And so I'm kind of like, I'm looking at my other hatchlings going, yeah, right, yeah. Let's, let's see if we can figure yeah. out how to kind of get what you do into a space that makes money that you can, you can thrive. So yeah. um, I'm kind of doing that. I didn't really make any money out of that, <laughs> but it, it's, it's gives me so much satisfaction yeah. to, to like see these people go. That's amazing. So you're taking on a sort of a mentor role, and yeah, yeah, and like, and like I'm trying to, I'm trying to form, like not, like not formalize it, but like fo- just focus on a couple of folks, yeah, and just kind of go, well, you're you're so talented, like, like you're so talented, and you're twenty something, and um, if, if you don't get the right opportunity, at the right time, you'll be back working in IT, you yeah, know? yeah, and, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There's so there's so many people that I saw when I was doing stand up, you know that just went away. Yeah. And you're like, wow. Like there's so many people that I, like I've caught up with a friend the other day who doesn't do stand up anymore and they're amazing. And we were talking about all the names that just aren't around anymore. Like, you know, and it's sad to see that there's so many amazing people that haven't stuck with it because they didn't get the opportunities. But it's so, it's so hard, right? It's so hard. I feel like I've had a lost, I feel like in media anyway, I've had like a lost decade. Right. Where I've just kind of been working on my own stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, And the opportunities that I've had have just kind of, scraps of the table that I've kind of built off my own back. Yeah. Um, uh, but I feel like there's space, there's a little bit of space kind of opening up now. But yeah. It's a, it's a weird thing where there's been a, yeah, there's been like a talent vacuum for a yeah. little bit, for a little bit, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, have you got a favourite thing that you've ever done? Um, yeah. You know, uh, Last year was a very strange time for many, many people. Um, 
And the last couple of years, I've was fortunate enough to be on a fellowship for irrational fear. So this fellowship basically said, um, we like what you do. What you do is really great with irrational fear. Um, the satire and the climate stuff will fund you for a year. And then they liked it so much they funded me for another year. Um, and in that time, I happened to kind of come across this idea that I thought would be really funny to do, which would be to um, put up comedy billboards mocking Australia's commitment to climate in Glasgow at the cl- at the climate talks in Glasgow. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to – it's expensive, but I'm going to um, see if my audience will pay for this $12,000 billboard to run three bits of artwork. Yep. And, uh, and we'll <laughs> – run a crowdfunding campaign um, to take the piss out of Scott Morrison and yep. and the coalition's 10 years of fucking delay on climate action. And I set this crowdfunder up at 6.30 in the morning, um, like September 27th, and it's 8.30 in the morning on September 27th. I had $12,000. <laughs> and then the money just kept coming in. Um, and at the end of the day, I had 40000 The next day, I had 60000 The end of the week, I had 90000 The week after, I had 190000 it At the end of the month, I had 190000 So it was this weird moment where I'm like, well, I'm going to need more billboards yes. um, and bigger billboards. Um, so I <laughs> part of the deal was um, if you donated 4000 to the initial uh, crowdfunder, you got to write your own billboard. And, right. and a, a famous Australian celebrity uh, who is will remain nameless, bought it. And then they went and bought more billboards in Glasgow as well. <laughs> wow. And then um, and then I because I raised all this extra money, I bought this gigantic billboard in Times Square yeah. for ten minutes and uh, and invited all the Australians I knew in New York to go down to it to Within take that photos, ten minutes, yep. to take photos of it and, and and film it and put it on the internet. And it was great. It was just this moment of in, insanity of like community and yeah. satire and comedy and um, I remember the initial artwork um, uh, and I had, I had, I've got it right here yeah. um, the, on, on my water bottle the initial artwork was this one the Australia net zero by 2300 20, I thought that would be really funny yeah. in Glasgow because everybody's talking about net zero by 2030 and yeah. I'm like oh well that's that people might think that's a typo but at the same time that's the reality of our situation is that yeah. we will be net zero by 2300 <laughs> <laughs> and I sent this to Reid Parker the phenomenal Photoshop artist. Yeah. And I said, is there anything else I can do with this? And he said, nah, maybe put a flame on the kangaroo. I'm like, great. Yeah. <laughs> so I put a flame on the kangaroo. Um, and it, it was a case where lots of different people had little inputs along the way. It was a true true kind of community building sort of event. Yeah. And I was kind of this... Um, because we're all in lockdown, right? It was all this fucking COVID lockdown. Yeah. And I was just like in my bedroom going seething with anger about climate change. <laughs> and so it, it was all of a sudden, like I was for like a split second, I was the most powerful person in Australia. Like yeah. I had Simon Holmes a court in my DMs. I had Russell Crowe DMing me. I had um, Mike Kennebrook sending me a text, you know, like just like this. <laughs> this yeah. I was like, is my bedroom the most powerful bedroom in Australia? Yeah. Like, <laughs> when, when you uh, do things like this and, you know, a, a lot of the stuff that you do is, you know, You've got a you've got a record of it. It's, you've got an archive of it yeah, somewhere. Yeah. You keep the stuff that you do with something like that. What is your? Is it just the water bottle? Where where, where do you keep things like that? Do you have lots of photos of it at Times Square. Yeah, I've got. I mean, it's on my Dropbox, but yep. you know, it's on Instagram. Um, but there's no there's no like 
Dan Illich Memorial Museum for comedy activism. You know, <laughs> <laughs> no printouts that you've got no, at your home. No, I don't think anyone at the National uh, Film and Television Archives has got anything of my stuff. No, there's no printouts. Um, no, 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 there's stickers all around. Australia, like yeah. we made these sticker packs and we sent out to people yeah. who gave us over a certain amount. So you'll hopefully see, you know, <laughs> little miniature billboards in suburbs all around Australia. Yeah. How hard is it to move on from one thing to the other? Because you do so much. How, I mean, you kind of just seem to keep going and going and going. I mean, you were doing The Tonightly, then after that you're doing it Home Alone together. Like there were so many projects that you've worked on that you always just move on to the next thing. Do you ever take the time and look back or is there no time? Uh, I think, I mean, at this time now, uh, I've had a really good few years and, you know, when I'm jumping from job to job, you'd appreciate this, is that when you're working in television for someone else, you're working on a liability, not an asset. Mm. You're making something for someone that somebody else owns. And financially, you always get the wrong end of the deal. Even when we're doing Ronnie John's, which ostensibly was our show, it's not, it doesn't pay crazy people you know <laughs> yeah, working yeah. on hungry beast was another not a, the pay for hungry beast was like d- dismal as well i was yeah. earning more i would have been i would have bought a house by now if i'd worked at the project directed the project yeah. you know like yeah yeah but like so jumping from jumping from job to job is almost out of necessity to keep the lights on yeah um and the first job i got paid you know uh, over six figures for was when i'm went to America to work at Al Jazeera, you know, yeah. like, um, and and then Fusion. Um, and those jobs kind of fell apart for various reasons, restructures and, you know, um, bad decisions. And so coming back to Australia to work on Tonightly, I was, for a better word, broke and desperate. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Tonightly was a version of something that I had wanted to build over the last... 10 years with a rational fear. Yeah. So I was like, well, well, I'll come back and work on Tom's thing. That'll yeah. be great. Um, and it was wonderful. And um, I just went back. I landed in Australia and got a job as a director on that show. Yeah. Um, producing stuff. And that was great. I was like, you know, it's like putting on an old pair of pants. Yeah. Easy. And then um, the executive producer changed and I got off, uh, he, off, he offered me the job. And I was like, well, far out though. I've, the, the most amount of people I've ever run Yep. was, you know, four um, in a team in America. Yeah. Um, but I had run, like, teams when I was a kid doing theatre, like about <laughs> 150 yeah. um, when I was a young producer. Um, so I had a panic moment when I took over that job. Yeah. The first person I called uh, when I got that job was my old producer at Gang Show, yeah. Rob Lang. Um, Rob's this incredible character who not only ran Cumberland Gang Show but was, like, is a CEO. You know, he's, yeah, yeah. he's run, like, Pacific Power and the Sydney Harbour Foreshore Authority and, you yeah, know, a right. b- bunch of big pa- – and Parramatta City Council. And I said, Rob, I just got given this job. Uh, what the fuck do I do? And he just gave me the best bits of advice. He was like, what you need to do is just be yourself, plant a flag in the ground and tell everyone to run to that flag and you turn up every day and you turn up with enthusiasm and you do the same. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, thanks very much. Yeah. So that's what we did. And it's it, being a being a boss of a sh- of a show like that was taught me a, taught me a lot about management and yeah um, teamwork and collaboration because when you're like like a creative boss of forty four people, um, you can't get too deep on anything yeah, and you have yeah. to trust the people who 
are in that room on that team, another great team, the Tonightly team, holy yeah. shit, like are the funniest, smartest people in Australia yeah. who are in, in your office and you can trust them to turn something around. Yeah. But when there are problems, it's your job to go in and fix it and serve and serve them. Like it's a service role. Like leadership yeah. leadership in that space is true service. Like you are there to service everybody to do their best work. Yeah. And, and oh wow, it was a, a real step up for me, like thinking uh, about uh, creative leadership in that regard. Yeah. And I never had to kind of – think about that in that, yep. in that space. So after running Tonightly, I was like, well, that's, that was, that was probably the hardest job I ever, I ever had. Yeah, wow. And when I got asked to do at Home Alone Together, um, I said, of course I said yes. Um, and that was one of the easiest jobs I've ever had to do. Wow. And it was yeah. during the lockdown <laughs> because we were working with smaller teams of just really great people yep. um, and working with, and because I'd done the show running stuff before, I had a real, I was really strong enough to kind of to do it again the second time around. Yeah. And once again, you know, that's taking a job because, you know, I was broke and I needed a job and it was coronavirus time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was um, wonderful to be able to, tr- to be trusted with, with both those roles. Yeah. And I really cherish those things. And that's when I kind of got to the point where I'm like, oh, well, now I've worked on these so-called liabilities. I can now really focus on building assets. Yeah. So I need to focus on now building things that I own that I can make money from. Yeah, yeah. That maybe one day I'll go buy a house with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have some uh, questions that I ask on this podcast. Um, and so I've actually written them down, Dan, which is huge. Um, if you could choose to be born into an environment, what would that look like? Um. I'd really love extremely wealthy parents that live in the eastern suburbs. Yeah. And maybe, maybe my dad wasn't a lawyer, but maybe he's a barrister or okay. a king's counsel. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> just really wealthy, Re- extremely wealthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, and just to work on my crypto. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, what trait in people do you find the most admirable? Um, intelligence mm-hmm. and honesty and. And humor, like yeah, I I think like smart people are funny people. So I don't think that there's and honest people. Honest people are often funny people too. Yeah, um, like I've become really good friends with um some really blatantly honest people over yep. the last fifteen years, and they're they're people who I love the most because it's just when you can call that bullshit, it's the funniest. It's the most enjoyable thing. Yeah, you know. And you always know where you stand with those people. You always know, yeah, yeah. You're, not on, you're not on rocky ground, that's for sure. Um, what's your favourite thing about yourself? My enormous penis. <laughs> it's a burden sometimes, but, you know, <laughs> when you're in the gym with yep. other men, sure. you know where you stand. <laughs> Often on three legs. <laughs> um, uh, I think, um, I, think um, I really enjoy collaboration. I think yep. I enjoy uh, facilitating collaboration. Uh, what's something you change about yourself? Just got to get back to being that power athlete. You yeah, know, that's, that power athlete. <laughs> I actually that you know, more belief in in what you do. It's it is yeah. Like I, because I am a little heavier than I was fifteen years ago. I don't tend to put myself on screen as much as I want to, or because I don't. My body image is trash. 
And so, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting my ankle healed and yep. be- becoming a power athlete again. Yeah, because I hate looking at myself being fat on screen. Sure. Yeah. Yep. It's so I don't. The reason why I have a podcast is partly that as well. <laughs> it's like I can look whatever I want to look, and yep. I don't have to worry about. But what as soon I look as that like. heals, you can get back into you know fitness. And, yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's just yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, who influenced you the most? It can be career-wise or it could be, you know, personally. <sighs> Mother Teresa. No. Um... You got big Mother Teresa vibes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I know, well, it's a cop-out and I'm sure a lot of your, your many of your guests say my parents. Yep. Um, and I think that's um, totally fine, yeah. But yeah. there's a few people who have mentioned in this, in this story, you know, um, um, Rob Lang and Nick Murray and Andrew yep. Denton. Um, Andrew in particular has incredibly generous gift to see you and then give you license to be you. And in those early Hungry Beast days, that was just the most incredible gift to be able to go, oh, there's nothing I'm doing is fundamentally wrong. Yeah. Here's my point of view. And all he wants me to do is be me plus twenty percent. Yep. And it's like, oh fuck! Like that's what an incredible gift, like an incredible license, um, and just yeah, just in, in phenomenal. He had a saying. He he always said, "I want you to be aggressively you," and he would say that to all of us yep. on the on the team. And look at our egos now. From all those people on that team. <laughs> We're taking over the world. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a really good example of like um, – uh, and I took this into, into Stantley as well. It's like finding great people with great talent and yeah. just trying to find the easiest path for those folks to do the best work they can do. Yeah. And that that is um, that, that was really special. So I always thank Andrew for that. Uh what drives you now and do you still have huge ambitions? Every day when you get up, what's the big thing that drives you? Um, I don't know. I don't yeah. know anymore. I'm getting tired. I'm getting tired. Yeah. <laughs> I want to lie down. Like, I, yeah. to, to, like today I drove to here through the Victorian countryside, through mm. these beautiful hills of country yeah. Victoria. I'm like, just, just need a little tiny need house. Just need a little <laughs> tiny house here and... Disappear from the world? Yeah. Maybe a podcast studio. Who yeah, knows? Not yeah, even yeah. that. Don't yeah. Not even that. Just a place to have a lie down. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think I'm invested in other folks and seeing them do well. So I think that's excited. I, I, I love being seen. Yeah. But I also like others others being seen. Yeah. And so if I can be seen and help others be seen, then that'll be – that to the extent of that ambition, that's what I hope to do. Um. Who do you choose to surround yourself with and has that changed? Yeah, it's, um, it's a weird – do you know what? It's thinking about that a lot lately because of COVID and lockdowns yeah. and stuff and it's like I feel so lonely now compared to five years ago Yep, because I feel like after two years of staying inside, uh, maybe I'll just stay inside again. Yeah, yep. The the barrier to go outside to do something is um, it's a little tricky. Yeah, but I love being around. Um, 
funny, ambitious, smart people. Yep. Like I love that. Yep. There's nothing more, more thrilling yep. than seeing new ideas come to life with, with good people. Um, if you could pinpoint a moment that had the greatest impact on you, what would that be? Uh, <clears throat> I think those, those moments of being seen are really great. Like I, as a kid, when I was doing gang show, the Scout and Guide show, <laughs> yeah. um, I think being like 10 years old and seeing people on stage and going, I want to do that, and then the next year auditioning and being one of those kids on stage was yeah. really cool. Then a few years later, being a 13-year-old and getting a phone call from the producer saying, do you want to come and work on the production team as a production assistant? I think that made me so excited and happy. Yeah. And that moment I was like, yeah, do I want to like, do I want to like, do this but in, in a much bigger way? Fuck yeah. Yeah. And I think from that moment onwards, I've been chasing that dream, you know, of like doing the bigger thing. How do I do the bigger thing? Like yeah. how do I do this but bigger? So I'm always trying to figure out like how to unlock those things. Yeah, amazing. Um, Dan, how do people find you in every wonderful thing that you do? Um, just um, head to my Twitter. <laughs> Dan Illich, yep. um, no H, uh, D-A-N-I-L-I-C. Uh, and uh, I'm very big on Twitter and uh, Instagram is good too. But also listen to A Rational Fear, which is my podcast, arationalfear.com. It's a great podcast. Thank you, Dan Illich, for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Sam, Sam Peterson. <laughs> Sam Peterson. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Nature or Nurture for this week. My name is Sammy Peterson and you can follow me, SamPeterson91 on Instagram. I also have a comedy podcast called Confessions. You can find that. The handles are Confessions, the podcast on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook. You can also just search it on your regular podcast apps. Please do rate this podcast. Uh, I would love that. It helps get the podcast out there to so many people. Thank you to the wonderful Michelle Laurie and Matthew Tankard. They're, they're great producers and I couldn't do this without them. Please do share this podcast around. I'd love to get it out there to as many people as possible. So please do share it with a friend and tell the person that you just heard on this podcast that you really enjoyed hearing their chat. Thank you so much. Hope you have a good week and I will talk to you very, very soon. Goodbye. 